Hello, everyone, and welcome, and every, uh, welcome to everybody on the live stream as well. This is terrific. What a great audience we have. Um, I'm aware that we have such a small topic to tackle today. <laughs> um, let's just change the world for the better in the next hour, ladies, okay? Is that, is that the aim, I think? Um, and I'm also aware that we've got some really varied experience here. So we're going to be ranging across a lot of different things, and I'm sure that there are things that we won't get to that some of you may feel frustrated about, but I think we're going to explore a lot of many and varied ideas on this panel. So uh, thank you all very much for joining us. Um, I'm also aware this morning that it is in Sydney, the morning after Mardi Gras, <laughs> where for the first time we had both our Prime Minister and Opposition Leader attending. And Marsha, I, I wanted to just ask you first, as a, as a writer and an activist uh, and a parent, you fled Vladimir Putin's Russia two years ago, um, fearful of your having your children taken away because you're a lesbian. And I just wonder what your reflections are on the need for change, being in Sydney at the moment, on this day, and having had the experience you've had over the last couple of years. Well, so my answer to the question, what needs to change, is we need regime change in Russia. <laughs> uh, and that will, benefit, uh, that will benefit not only Russia, but, uh, but the world uh, and, and stability in the world. But, um, you know, looking at Mardi Gras, and we were talking about this a little bit before, before the panel, uh, I had the odd experience last year of traveling from Pride to Pride. Uh, and being able to compare the really political and frightening and dangerous uh, events that happened you know, in, in Moscow in May. A few people came out and were immediately beaten and arrested. Uh, in Kiev, I went to the, uh, what was supposed to be a Pride March, and I was attacked by a gang of right-wing thugs, and it basically turned into a street battle uh, with many people injured, one policeman injured, injured critically. In Budapest, the annual Pride March has basically become the annual sort of opposition march because that is where the front line of, of, of the culture war is there. And, um, and so most of the people who march are straight, but it's the focal point of, uh, of, of, of the cultural debate about the direction of the country. Um, and then even the, the, uh, even the very commercial uh, Pride Parade in New York took on a different meaning for me because we brought activists from Russia and from Ukraine who had never seen a really silly commercial pride parade, which stopped <laughs> being silly and commercial. And so uh, it, it, it sort of fills my heart with, with joy and bitterness when I see the prime minister and the opposition leader at Mardi Gras in mm. Sydney. So apart from regime change in Russia... No, that's else? all. That's all I want. That's all you want. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. Um, what would you change and how do you change that? Because you've had to leave. So, you know, you're now an activist on the outside of your home country. How, how do you get that change? You know, I don't have a lot of hope for that change. I know that it's, it's a closed system. It will implode sooner or later just because closed systems implode. Um, but working for the impossible is what we all do, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, let, let's just get a few ideas and then we can start pulling them all apart. Uh, Crystal, your work is about defending and protecting your environment and the rights of your people in Canada. What would you do 
if you could change? What do you think needs to change most in your community to improve the, the lot of women? Okay, you made it easy. You took it right to the community. Um, so, the biggest thing um, that we're dealing with is, and, and I know that this, this resonates with, um, with a lot of, of my relatives, no matter where they are, you know, in, in our, on our mother earth, is that um, our men, our men in our communities need to um, reclaim themselves. They need to reclaim their connection to the land and to go back to their original um, ways of knowing and being and thinking and doing. Um, because until that colonized mind is changed and they defeather themselves, um, the capitalist thinking will continue, which means that um, their disconnect from our women and their responsibility to our women and our children will continue. Um, and, you know, that in part, you know, um, is, is a contributing factor to the over 1,200 missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada with that number rising daily. 1,200 a year? Over 1,200. 1,200. In total, we have so over 1,200. Over 1,200 in total. Yeah. Okay, and you attribute that to what? I mean, what, what do you attribute that to, that disconnection? Because we see that kind of violence... A piece of it. ...in a lot of communities around the world. Mm -hmm. That's why I said, you know, it, it would resonate with, um, with my relatives, no matter where they are. Um, and that, that has to do with that disconnect to the land, mm -hmm. which is a disconnect to our ways of knowing and being. And you also mentioned to me last night, woman-on-woman -woman violence, too, was mm -hmm. a concern. Um, so in, this, in this, this walk that we walk, um, you know, as, as an Indigenous woman, it, it's already hard enough being born into this world as a woman, but it's, it's even harder being born as an Indigenous woman. And when you're faced with, um, you know, we talk about violence against our women and, and you know, the, the over-representation of, you know, our women in, in these, these different systems. Um, but there, there's, there's a lot of um, lateral violence. Um, jealousy is violence. Lateral violence is, it, it plays a huge impact on, on our women. And so the violence um, of women being um, violent to each other and abusive to each other, it needs to stop. It needs to stop if we're ever really going to reclaim who we are as women, as caretakers of, of our Mother Earth. Mm. And in the short to medium term, how do you stop it? I mean, your, your, your overview is a longer term issue. Again, it's, it's a system change. Simple. <laughs> it's a system change. Mm. What do other people think about this? I mean, uh, the issue of violence, I think, is really interesting at the moment because for all the gains that women have made, you know, we've got ISIS using women as slaves, we've got Boko Haram, we've got women being assaulted in squares in Egypt, we've got shocking domestic violence figures here in Australia. 
Why? Why is that still such a huge issue? Anne-Marie, do you, do you have a perspective on that, having worked in the State Department well, and having a bit of a global it, kind of look? Yeah, you know, I, I come at it from, from two different ways. On the one hand, uh, these are uh, long ingrained and sometimes cultural practices that need to be combated, often uh, by uh, women and, and men within a particular culture. Uh, so if you, you, um, you know, as you were talking about lateral violence, I was wondering, you know, does, does female genital mutilation count? Some people would think it does. Certainly, the, you know, it's women who do that to other women. Uh, that's a cultural practice that, that, you know, outside that culture, you, you would think that certainly is not something those women want, and yet it's women who do that to, to women. So and there, yet there are women who'll defend it, and it, there are women who, who will voluntarily have it done as adults. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so, you know, I, I see one whole category of violence against women as, as I said, cultural practices. You know, there are those in Islam who completely justify essentially treating women as property. And then there are plenty of others in Islam who say, look, no, that is not, you know, that was not the prophet's view. That is not in the Quran or that's a particular reading of the Quran. And that's one whole category. And, but again, that kind is better fought from within the culture. There's another category that goes to the what is happening to men. Uh, and there I, I very much agree with Crystal that when I, look, when I have traveled, for instance, to uh, Western Africa, to Siberia, uh, to Sierra Leone, and I once led a, a delegation of six women in technology, you know, and we were the State Department, and we were tech, and we were women, and wasn't that great, and we were preaching what has become development gospel, which is that investing in women, it, it, you get far higher return on every dollar invested than, than handing it to governments or handing it to men. And I, I buy that, but at the same time, I was looking at all these men who had been recruited as soldiers and then demobilized, although they still often had weapons, hanging out on street corners with no jobs, no connection to a kind of trajectory of how to actually have meaning and purpose in their lives. And thinking to myself, you know, you can't do this halfway. That's, that's my theme generally. You, we also, if we want to stop violence against women, have got to think about the deeper sources of male frustration and rage, not the lateral violence, but the male-on-female violence. It doesn't make it all right, but you're not going to eradicate it. You're treating the symptoms and not the cause unless we're also thinking about, you know, what is the man's purpose and meaning in life? What is his opportunity? He has an equal right uh, to flourish as any woman does, and we have to, to, grant, we have to look at those both in a more holistic way. Mm. Anyone else like to comment on that? I think it's interesting that uh, the theme for this year's International Women's Day is actually gender parity. Mm. And of course, for there to be parity, you've got to have both sides moving. You can't just do it from... Women can't just do it and men stand still or, or stay the same or go backwards, whatever, however you want to describe it. So I think the idea of parity, in fact, is that, um, you know, for there to be parity, for there to be 50% representation in politics, you've got to have a whole group of the current crop step away. 
um, you've got to have a different group standing forward to be mm. pre-selected. And we sort of creep towards that. And you it's know, too it, it's slow. It's like the target's 35% or it's the too target's... Slow. Why go for 25%? I mean, let's go for it. Mm. So I think the idea... You've got to go for parity, otherwise men don't change. If you do it incrementally, women keep pushing the barriers of change for ourselves, mm. and nothing, everything else stands still. So you end up with, in Sierra Leone or where, in the Pacific, I spent a lot of time in the Pacific, you end up with women trying to do it around the conventional structures as opposed to change conventional structures, which ultimately is what we've got to do more of now. Mm. I think we've got to step up our ambition and step up where we influence. Rather, we've got to do micro stuff as well, but we've got to step change the conversation. So how? Sorry, go on. Well, uh, the, I completely agree, but then we have to ask. So what happens to those men who have to step aside? Right? We don't just say, okay, you just step aside and do do nothing. We then have to say to them, okay, so then you're the lead parent. So then you're supporting, you know, a woman in your life or another man in your life. But they have to then have the role that we vacated or had find meaning and, and value in that. Otherwise, they, they're just angry. Marsha, you're yes. frowning, and I want to know why. <laughs> oh, I'm just, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around this because uh, I, 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 is there any way to have this conversation without making the assumption that everybody is in a traditional marriage or everybody's in a heterosexual relationship? It's, uh, and it, you know, I don't know how to propose where we start. But, but the reason I was frowning was because I was trying to, uh, to sort of build a little bridge between my life and what we're talking about, and it's not working very well. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I quite disagree. I actually think same-sex couples in this regard have... Well, I assume it's a couple. Oh, doesn't have to be, but let's right. start somewhere. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's no gender default there. And that's hugely important. I'm arguing for a world in which either couples or single parents or extended families or however you construct a family, and that can be biological or chosen or whatever, decides who's doing the caring and who's doing the breadwinning based on who the people are, not what the gender is. And in that sense, same-sex couples, if they're couples or not, uh, don't have a gender default that the rest of us still default Mm. I agree. I, I, and and same-sex couples often fall into similar patterns, which is why I would roll it back a little bit further and say, let's stop talking about couples. Let's talk about systems. Mm. Okay, Mallory, you're being very patient sitting here listening to all of this. What do you want to change? I want to change that you put me on this panel. Everyone here is so smart, <laughs> and I make jokes about art. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you make great jokes about thank art, you. by the way. Thank you, I appreciate that. I yeah. just want to go back to my quiet little room and make jokes about paintings. Um, <laughs> what no, do you want to, no, you have got things you want to change. What do you want to change? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what I've been hearing so far is, is uh, everything that, that I would have thought about, um, I think at least kind of in the communities that I'm a part of, there's a big conversation, especially in sort of my corner in America, about um, intersectional feminism and, and sort of mainstream white corporate feminism and, and how that sort of um, traditionally excluded a lot of different types of women um, and sort of having the conversation of how is, you know, the white heterosexual middle class 
feminist, um, making a lot of assumptions that actually hurt other women and other people of, you know, varying gender identities. Mm. Um, and so she's that's, not looking at you two, by the way. She's, I'm not, oh she's God. very deliberately you know, I mean, looking like, at the, me. The phrase that you'll hear about sometimes is sort of white feminism with a capital W and a capital F. And it doesn't mean all white women who are feminists, but it means that sort of uh, sometimes bulldozing movement that sort of says all women have these experiences, all women must share these goals, um, and anybody who doesn't fit into that picture isn't isn't going to be a part of it. Yeah. And I think. But what's, that's what's interesting about this panel because you know when I was thinking about how are we going to make this work, how are we going to talk about you know such varied lived experiences that everybody has. I mean. Everyone's experience is their experience. You know, someone once said to me, your biggest problem is your biggest problem. And in a sense, that's true, you know, of, of everybody. I just wonder how you think you bridge that gap that you see. And you particularly see it around race in your community. That's yeah? at least a lot of where the conversation is. Mm. Um, I mean, absolutely, there are ways around, um, um, you know, queer communities. And I think the answer is just treat everyone like a lesbian. Um, <laughs> I don't really see a downside to that. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, don't be. I want to know more about how oh, so <laughs> you do that. Oh, no, just, you know, the sort of like the old joke of you see a heterosexual couple and you say, so which one of you is the first lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking water now. You guys can't ask no, me no, any no, more no. questions. <laughs> Don't you think that's going to work? Um, but how do you think you bridge those gaps? I mean, if you want to see that change, what, what is the change you want to see? Do you want to see people backing off and giving more room for other people to have their conversations, or do you want to see more of a bridge built between groups? How, how do you...? Yeah, no, I think that's a wonderful question. It's so worth considering in so many different ways. And obviously there are ways in which my own experience as a queer white American woman is, is really specific. Um, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with, um, uh, you know, stepping back and listening to women in, in part of other communities. Um, it's, it's not always as, as... I'm trying to think of... You know, it's interesting that we have a word like intersectional. It's interesting that there needs to be a word for feminism that's not driven by white supremacy. Because um, that's really telling, right? And it says a lot, at least, again, in America. It's not a word a lot of Australians would be as familiar with. Okay, yeah, so maybe it's an American thing. Intersectional feminism sort of has to do with this idea that, that not everyone has just sort of one identity. That like, oh, I'm a woman or I'm a, per or a person's a woman or a person of color. Like, some people are both. <laughs> um, <laughs> Or, or also queer, um, or, or also trans, or, 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 you know, experience a lot of different sort of setups. And there's, there's ways in which, especially in America, sorry to be so American-centric, but that's kind of my story, um, this is really dominated by this, you know, white heterosexual narrative of what are our needs and um, what does it look like for us in the workplace as opposed to, well, what about women who are facing, you know, a, a really easy question, no, I'm sorry. One way of, like when we talk about the wage gap in America, you'll often hear white women talking about, you know, we make 78 cents to the dollar for, for white men, but what's left out of that equation is a lot of men of color don't make the 78 cents. And a lot of women of color, particularly black and Latino women, make less than that. And that sort of gets lost in this conversation of feminisms about white women getting on the same level as white men, pulling up the ladder after ourselves and saying, well, glad we handled that. And I think that's... <laughs> so...
Okay, I'm so I, I love the fact that we have to come to that we, we, we're going to have this conversation in Sydney because this is the conversation that this is the divide between the Sanders supporters, young women who are Sanders supporters, and older women who are Clinton supporters. Right here, mm. this this is exactly uh, what what it is, and I, I want to ask about that. Although I, you know, in terms of everybody seeing things through their own lens, when I see those those uh, gender wage gap. What I always think is, what they're not saying is single women who don't have children, or, or not, it, it doesn't matter whether they're single or they're married, women who don't have children are 96% on the dollar. Mothers, and many of whom are mothers of color, but period, mothers are 72%. So I always look at it that way. But, but so, I completely get intersectionality. I wrote a book trying to reframe the issue so that we're focusing on women at the bottom, not women at the top. But what do you say to what has to be Anne's reaction and is certainly mine, which is, great, you wouldn't be sitting here except for those white corporate feminists. In other words, you really wouldn't. It, it's, not, it's not that that's all there is. It is, though, that those were women who lived in a world in which men dominated everything. And unless you played their game and fought on their terms, you didn't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a world in which I was told, you know, if, if you're playing tennis with a boy, don't lose your head and win. And if you're going to a party, for God's sake, don't be smart. You'll never get a guy. Mm -hmm. Right? And I'm not that old, you know? But how, so, so this is a conversation that needs to be had. But and it's a conversation that needs to be had amongst a yeah. group like this and on a much bigger scale, I think. That's such a good point. And I, I hope, I, I didn't mean to, I'm you know, trying to explain. You're not really offending in the least, don't worry. Um, <laughs> not to say, gosh, everything about what's happened in the feminist movement, especially the mainstream one in the last 20, 30, 40 years has been bad, not at all. Um, but it's sort of, sort of saying, that was a wonderful conversation to have had. Let's continue having it. Let's also talk about the women who didn't get invited to play tennis at the club. Mm. Um, and I think if, if I overspoke, it was sort of, those things are no, wonderful. I, and, and they've benefited me, especially, like as, as, a, as a woman who kind of fits into a lot of those categories. And I think it's more about, let's expand the conversation, not let's vilify everyone who came before us and say they were awful, so much as let's open it up, let's do more, let's continue to build on that, if that makes sense. But how, how good is it? How good is it that we are now talking about not just corporate women, yeah. but we are talking about indigenous women, we are talking about women with different, you know, we're trying to put sexuality to bed as a... As a gay a, women. Yeah, gay women, okay, <laughs> gay women. Crystal, what do you think? Trying to work out how to do it. Just, <laughs> 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 Talking Didn't want to offend you, Mallory, I mean, hello. <laughs> Crystal? What do you think listening to this conversation? I mean, do you, do you think something needs to change in relation to, you know, who's leading conversations or where the priorities lie? That's the issue. That's the biggest issue. Somebody always wants to lead. It's always that conversation. Who's going to lead it? Who's going to have the biggest mouth? That's the problem. But there's, that's always going to be a problem. We all want to run always, around. There are always going to be. We all want to run around talking about solidarity. Why can't we all 
just break the intergenerational trauma, the toxicity of I'm having a really hard time um, putting it into words, what I'm feeling, hearing this conversation. Um, as an indigenous woman who was raised by old people, I'm lucky that way, I was raised by my grandmother. Um, she always told me, here, this is what I'll say. This is what she told me. And it's probably doesn't serve me a good purpose sitting on the panel. <laughs> Because what she told me is, Nitans, my daughter, the Creator gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. To listen more than you talk. <laughs> so that when you do something, when you actually say and do something, it will be meaningful. And so my role as a woman it doesn't matter if I'm gay, trans, straight, whatever, purple, green, blue. My role as a woman, as a human being, is to change my way of thinking and doing away from this need to be really loud and it's ego. But sometimes you have to be loud to be heard. Sometimes you have to be loud to get change. Why can't we do that together? Why does somebody always have to lead? Marsha, you're frowning again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, no, I don't think I was frowning, but um, <laughs> but look, I mean, we're we're all on this panel, right? We're and there's a reason uh, some, somewhere along the line we must have had the bad sense to start speaking out more than other people, uh, and I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think that um, uh, being able to speak, I think it's a huge luxury to be able to be heard. I can't believe that when I have a thought, I can write it down and put it in a newspaper and people will read it and react. That is like the most amazing privilege uh, and the most amazing skill to have. Um, and I think it's, it's incumbent upon those of us who have that privilege and that skill to use it in, in good ways. I mean, that is one of the ways we're going to have to get change, and it's certainly the only way I know, so that's what I'm going to do. Okay, okay let's, get, let's just get back no, to... Yeah, yeah, follow-up comment. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's bad to be heard and to, to have your voice heard and your opinion heard. I'm an Indigenous woman. I'm an Indigenous woman who's made her way around the world because I use my voice. But... The issue is that somebody always has to be the boss. Somebody always has to lead. Yeah, frown because it's that that's real ugly. No, it's really ugly true. that we have to think that way. That, and this is I'm an indigenous woman that lives on the front lines of of a really ugly system. 
And, and I had to work really hard and listen to my elders at the same time to get to where I am today to ensure that I'm speaking in a good way for my children and for those generations to come. But it's really hard sitting in a space where as a woman of color, an indigenous woman, you feel like, you know, and, and just even coming through the, the system of colonization in that as an indigenous woman, I had to go and educate myself in, in Western academia to get a whole bunch of letters behind my name so that people would listen to me. That sucks. Marsha, can I, can I ask you, now that you live in the United States, um, what would you like to see change there for women? <laughs> well, um, well, I'm most concerned with the election that we're having in the United States. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I'm concerned with it on a number of levels, uh, one of which is the obvious Donald Trump level. Uh, a fairly obvious Which level. is like, um, you know, where do I go next? I just came over from Russia two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but just in Australia. <laughs> I, this, this, this place you is wonderful. <laughs> um, but, um, but I also, uh, I mean, I've been trying to wrap my mind now for months around the Democratic primaries and, uh, and how, uh, and what's, hap what's been happening to Hillary, uh, I think, because she's a woman, yeah, you know. Uh, and um, and it's, not, it's probably not the only reason, but I think that this, uh, uh, this setup uh, of, uh, I think, the most remarkable presidential campaign that I have ever seen in my life, right? Uh, and obviously you can tell from the sound of my voice that I haven't just lived in the United States for two years. I, uh, I, I also mm. was educated in the States uh, and I first came over when I was 14. So I've, I've, I've been an American citizen for most of my life. Um, it's, I don't think we've ever seen that kind of intelligence, that kind of mastery, that kind of expertise in a presidential campaign. And she's running against a candidate who, for all the right things he says, or he's running against her, uh, basically his, his message that I think is getting the most traction is, it's really very simple. And in that sense, it's as anti-political a message as Donald, Donald Trump's message. It's as reductive a message as Donald Trump's message. And I think that one of the reasons it's getting traction is because she is a woman who is too ambitious and too smart. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, and she's just trying to be in a place where a woman doesn't belong. Um, which is not to take away from the validity of, from some, of the, some of the things that Bernie Sanders is, is, is saying, but I think that the politi political dynamic is working that way. Do you think, do you see it that way, Mallory? Yes. <laughs> well, that was good. <laughs> Keep going. It's pretty simple, really. Keep on going. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so, so change means changing attitudes to women running for powerful positions. It's changing attitudes to women running for powerful positions. It's changing the way we do politics. Mm. Uh, it's, it's not being afraid of 
intellectualism in politics. It's, 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 it's not being afraid of leadership and moral leadership, uh, which, which, which I think all the sort of the deficits that we're seeing, not just in the United States, uh, most certainly in Europe, uh, those are just the places I know well, right, um, is, is this, this huge fear of moral and intellectual leadership, especially on the part of women. Mm. Uh, um, sorry, yeah. oh, just to, you know, if you, if you look at a lot of the way the press treats her, it's Lady Macbeth, right? It is secretive, calculating, ambitious. It just plays smack into this stereotype that says, yeah, women should know their place. And, and, and you can't call the press out on that, and she can't say anything about that, right? You, she, you, know, you can say it here, but, but if she does that, she's whining, she's playing you know, the gender card, none of it. But it's, it's, un, the bias is enormous. Hmm. I, that's interesting that you say that. Um, so historically, in, in where I come from, um, women didn't, lead, didn't have leadership roles in, in our communities. They, they weren't chiefs. Um, and we, we've seen a change in that. So my community, um, we had the first female chief back in the 70s. And um, just recently, um, the, the chief now leading our community is, is a woman, is my aunt. She's the second chief in, in our community. Um, and so I, I, I really like that you, you talked about um, women in leadership roles, because going back to what I just said about, you know, being the loudest and is that, so my aunt is a very quiet, kind, humble, timid woman, not somebody you would necessarily see in, in the norm of a leadership role. So she leads our government because our, 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 us as sovereign people are no different than you know, the, you know, somebody at the municipal level or the provincial level or the federal level, she is just the same as, you know, those prime ministers and, you know, the premiers and um, in, in her leadership role leading a nation of, of over 1,200 people. But she does it in a way where she's, she's kind and she's loving and, and she's removed that idea of... Um, you know, uh, privilege and entitlement in a leadership role. Mm. And, and that introduces the whole question of diversity in leadership, <laughs> of course, for women, particularly the idea of diverse styles of leadership. I mean, and you're a, you know, CEO and you've, you've done a lot of leading in your time. Um, I know when, equity was one thing you wanted to talk about, but the other thing you wanted to talk about was risk and risk taking by women. And I. I I'd just like to get a sense from you of why you think that's important. Uh, I think one of the challenges for a lot of us is that, um, and there was a great phrase used uh, at a function that we were all at last night, that um, we need to be, to focus on being brave, not perfect. And uh, the idea for girls of, from quite a young age, and you talk about the issue with boys, I think a lot of the issues with girls is as well, uh, being encouraged not to fail, not to put yourself in positions where you fail, not to learn from failure. But what we know is change comes from trying something, and if it doesn't work, you try something else, and if that doesn't work, you try something else. So in some ways, change comes from series of failures and trying to do better each time. And it doesn't come from trying to be perfect. 
and staying within the boundaries of the status quo and trying to be perfect inside the boundaries. So for me, leadership is about pushing the boundaries. Sometimes it's about breaking the rules because the rules were made by someone or, you know, at a time that's irrelevant uh, or by someone who is now irrelevant or someone you think's an idiot. You know, there's uh, <laughs> lots of rules. Are, rules are made by all sorts of weird and wonderful people. Um, but rather than trying to fit into those boundaries, I think real leadership, and whether it's loud or not, um, and I'm probably on the louder side of leadership, but <laughs> um, whether it's loud or not, is about challenging norms, challenging things that are wrong, trying new things, being prepared to fail, taking risk. Um, and, you know, maybe it's... And that translates in lots of different ways. It's the risk of trying to do something with your business that's different. It's the risk of trying a new job for yourself. It's the risk of trying to bring up your kids differently. It's the risk of... It's all sorts of things, but taking risk needs to be better embedded in our conversation because without it, we'll stay within the current system. Mm. Unless you take risk, the system doesn't change mm. because you're constantly trying to manoeuvre yourself inside it rather than take it on. not every woman is brave. You know, you're brave. No, no, I mean, not everyone has to be brave, brave, but you can be brave in small ways. You're currently terrified. <laughs> you're okay, brave because you're <laughs> But you can... No, no, seriously. <laughs> you don't have to be brave in big ways. You can be brave in lots of different ways. You're brave within your own culture to, you know, yeah. to do whatever it takes to try and change, to speak out. Yeah, I think I'm speaking for the person who might be thinking, but I'm not bra I don't feel like I'm brave. You know, I don't feel like I'm a brave person. A lot of people would put themselves in that category. And you're saying everybody should just test risk in all sorts of ways. Well, and for the person sitting next to you who does feel brave, hook someone else under the arm and take them with you. Yeah, quite. So well, it doesn't need to be everyone by themselves. It, and okay. if you're not scared, you're not brave. Right? In other words, if you don't feel fear, you can't be brave. Being brave is your, your stomach hurts like crazy. You are dying the way I felt about public speaking for half my life. Totally terrified yeah. and nevertheless making yourself go out and do it. So it's not whether the presence of, of fear. Yeah, and fear is a great inhibitor um, of people. Mallory, I'm, I'm determined to, to, you know, you. just <laughs> make sure you don't How run away. Um, okay, let's talk about the toast a bit because I think, it's, I, I think it's really interesting what you're doing with the toast. And you've described it as being sincere without being serious. The that toast, sounds like something the I The toast would say. website, yeah. yeah? Yeah. Can you explain to people, and for anyone who hasn't visited the toast, I highly recommend the Women in Art History series, um, but also a number of other things on the site which are very, very funny, uh, but also make a lot of really interesting points. Oh, so well. just explain to people your approach to feminism via humour. Sure, well thank you so much for asking me about something I can speak to. <laughs> um, uh, I really appreciate that. Um, the Toast is something that my business partner Nicole Cliff and I started about three years ago. Um, and it, it is something that we, we both knew would involve humour and would involve feminism but would not necessarily be um, uh, it wouldn't always be taking a really straightforward angle on either of those things. Um, so while I don't get up in the morning and think like, how will I use humor today to deploy my secret feminist message? <laughs> um, you know, they're both, they're both very much woven into the core of who we are. So um, for example, the series that you were mentioning, which is Women in Western Art History, um, which is this sort of very specific look at Western European art for about the last 500 mm -hmm. years. There's this sort of wonderful, um, 
motif you'll start to notice, which is there's a lot of paintings with really anodyne names, like afternoon tea or like a delightful salon. Um, and there's a guy really aggressively playing the lute or reading some poetry. And um, all the women have these faces as they're listening that's just sort of like... <sighs> and you, you I sort like of... the women having a bad time at parties. Yep, yeah, yeah. And, and you really sort of good. start to realize that maybe some of these painters didn't realize that's the face of someone who's bored. Mm. Um, <laughs> they thought, that's just the face that all women have when you play the lute at them. <laughs> um, and I feel a lot of affection for all the parties because I've, I've, I've been the person playing the lute very aggressively and I've been the person who's sort of felt like, oh, this okay, is... Okay, I'm going I'm to read a little bit of the site just, just to give you a, an idea. This is... Um, Mallory wrote this and it's an abridged version, but it's the year 2050 and feminism has finally won. Women make up more than 80% of serial killers <laughs> and serial killer-related entertainment shows. <laughs> And you go on, it's 2050 and women swagger down the street, many of them 10 feet tall, draped in construction vests and catcalling the men who scurry from hiding places to hiding place during the daylight hours. <laughs> Actual cats fly out of their mouths, along with sexually objectifying remarks. It's the year 2050 and nursing in public is mandatory. <laughs> It's the year 2050 and men spend most of their time writing passionate letters and sending money to charismatic female murderers in prison. <laughs> it's 2050 and the number one compliment that women give men is feisty. <laughs> and it's 2050 and instead of using fossil fuels, planes and trucks, we now run on feelings. <laughs> it's fabulous. It's fabulous. But Mike... <laughs> But I feel like, you know, like The Simpsons, the toast operates at many different levels, you know, from the, from the feminist laughing at something to the Homer's laughing, you know, against or with things. Um, and I just wonder what you think the role of humour is in changing things, because, you know, a gif or a meme comes and goes, you know, humour is a huge part of social media, it's, it's you know, humour is king on social media. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's an agent for change or do you think people just laugh and move on? Um, first of all, thank you so much for comparing me to The Simpsons. <laughs> I hope you meant seasons two through eight, but frankly I will take any. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's a really wonderful question because there's sort of different ways of looking at it where some people feel like humor is a way of treading water and not dealing with an issue um, or other people who feel like humor means you're always laughing at something and I don't think those are necessarily your only two options and I think obviously there's lots that we publish on the toast that is not humorous um, so I don't want to make it sound like we're just a joke factory no. um, but I do feel like sometimes there are certain conversations that feel like they're, they're being had by default and everyone has to sort of engage in them and I think sometimes there's value in sort of saying I'll I'll deal with this but obliquely and it's going to be on my own terms um, and I'm going to find part of it sort of affectionately nonsensical. Um, maybe in some ways it's always been treated with great seriousness and great reverence um, and that might help somebody see it in a slightly different way. Um, so I think there's ways of course of laughing at something that's a way of not dealing with it and I think there's also a way of laughing at something that's a way of mocking it and saying this isn't important and I think there's a third way which is sort of um, I acknowledge this conversation, I think we should look at it from a different angle and I think one of the ways I can show people that anger is, is through humor and I think that there's a lot of value in that and that's when we're at our best that's what we're trying to do. So do you see the toast as an agency for change? Do you think of it as something that is 
trying to change attitudes? I would like to say that sometimes we are change adjacent. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to put too much of the burden on. I, don't, I also don't think that every conversation has to be life-changing and, and incredibly significant. I think you can also just, just have a lot. So somewhere in between. Sometimes it's just funny. Sometimes it might help someone look at something in a new way. Um, uh, I don't want to take a lot of, I don't want to be one of those people who's sort of like, well, as, as a humorist, I like to think that laughter is the greatest change agent in the world. Cause like there's, there's other stuff out there, mm. but I do think that there's, I do think there's value to it for sure. Sure. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about family and children because it is, you know, it comes up so often as an issue for women around, you know, dealing with the demands as often the primary caregivers. And Anne-Marie, this is your focus in your book, and I just wonder, out of all the things that you looked at when you wrote that book, you know, what would you single out as the thing that needs to change to improve women's position in the broader society? So if I think there's one single thing, it is that when we talk about children, we don't talk about women. We talk about parents. We talk about men. We talk about single parents. We talk that, that this reflexive assumption that care is a woman's job is locking us into permanent inequality. That care is a woman's job. It is equally a man's job. It, it doesn't matter, it's no more a woman's job than breadwinning is a man's job. When we talk about earning an income, we now assume women, we, we raise our children to assume that our daughters will earn an income as well as our sons. But we still raise our sons to assume their primary job is to raise an income and they can also help out. No, <laughs> it's equally their responsibility. And that's a big big cultural change because we reflexively say women and children or you know women work in family and whenever we talk about a care issue we assume it's her job first he can help why why isn't it his job just as much as hers why aren't both if they're in a couple mindful of your point if it's two people and if it's in a couple why isn't it equal and if it's one person why isn't it equally a man and or to a woman why do we assume it's single mothers why aren't we thinking about single fathers you also you also talk about women's presumed superiority in the domestic realm <laughs> Yeah, this part gets a little harder. And you, and, you, and you say women have to let it go and men have to take it up. Yeah. Yeah? So I often get the response, yeah, absolutely. You know, in the abstract, this is fine. You know, men can be equal, men can be equal carers. Uh, but then uh, um, imagine the following hypothetical. Imagine if you walk, if you're a woman and you're, you work, and you walk into your office or wherever your workplace is, and your boss, who's a man, says, I'm actually biologically better at this job, but I think you can do it if I micromanage you enough. <laughs> so if I leave you daily lists as to what to do, and when I travel, I'll call every hour or so to make sure you've <laughs> done that. Now, I'm not gonna say all women 
treat men in their lives if they have a man in their lives that way, but many of us do. Many of us, I will just say, I certainly assumed that I knew what I was doing in, on the home front more than my husband did. But then I realized that's because I was raised by my mother. And when a man says to me, he knows what he's doing better than I do on the work front, I don't accept that for a minute. I just think he works differently than I do and why isn't my way just as right as his? But on the home front, I think a lot of, a lot of us are actually still quite sexist in terms of what we assume men can really do. And I think one of the, one of the great... Uh... <laughs> One of the great liberating revelations for many women, and I was one of them, was to understand I was actually better at work than I was at home. Yes. <laughs> so it's, do I love cleaning house and having pristine home environment? Couldn't care less. Do I need to manage the fridge contents? Couldn't care less. Um, and thank God for takeaways. So, you know, there's a dynamic around all of that. For, and now initially I struggled with that, actually, because I was brought up by my mother as well. I struggled with the fact that I didn't fit the convention and that it wasn't really what made me feel happy. And, and so that dynamic, ultimately, in the relationships that, I've, that I'm in, that worked itself out over time. Uh, and, you know, my spouse picked up much more of that than I did over time. Because the other thing also is that we look out into the world of perfect, happy families. Largely, it's dealt to us on TV, but it, it's, nobody's lives are really like that as well. And I think that's quite challenging for all of us because all our lives are messy. Mm. You know, you don't, it's not mum, dad, the kids. It could be mum, mum, dad, dad. The kids are all hobbly, you know, gobbledygook and, you know, never as neat as they look on TV. <laughs> I've got a child with a disability. You know, that's a different world to the neat world that we're all presented. And there's no rule book for any of that stuff. So I think that idea and, you know, And the how article, did you negotiate that? You know, in your own well, life. Well, you negotiate it the same as you negotiate other things. Sometimes you've got trigger points for that. So I often tell the story, you know, one of our trigger points was the school ringing when Nick was quite little, yeah. saying, you know, your child's just been chained to the school gate because no parent's here. It's like, oh, shit. So, <laughs> and of course, the first thing you do is you get on the phone and go, it's your turn, now it's your turn. So, so we have the your turn fight, and then both of us speed from opposite ends of the city, causing traffic chaos as we head to the school. So neither of us are deemed bad parents. Change children to gates. Oh, my God. I mean, you've got no idea what goes on here. But, uh, <laughs> And that's, Australia's an option, yeah, that's right. Well, uh, so, I mean, it's, so you have those magic moments where you just go, our life cannot go on like this. This is not a good space to be. And you work out what gives. And that's a constant process of negotiation. Mm. But you've got to and have it's, the... And it can be a knife edge too. I mean, do you experience that as a mother? Masha, you travel a lot. You, yeah. you, you know, how, how do you negotiate those things? Well, so my family at the moment consists of me, my partner, my ex-partner, our three kids, the male nanny who's lived with us off and on for years at a time uh, since my daughter was born 14 years ago, and the, the couple of refugees from St. Petersburg with their four-year-old daughter who, who live in the rental apartment downstairs and also share in childcare. So all of it, and I'm the primary breadwinner, uh, for that setup, 
all of us have, uh, uh, and I travel, uh, and all of us have, you know, th there's sort of two primary parents and a third parent, uh, and then the nanny who steps in because he's a member of the family, exactly. and there's shared childcare. And that's, you know, I think that uh, that's not a recipe, right? That's an example. Uh, but I think... <laughs> Uh, that would be an interesting recipe. But if you want the recipe, recipe, I can put it down on paper for you later. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, that, that's, that's why I was yeah. uh, uh, frowning again when Anne-Marie was talking, because I think that, you know, it's not enough to stop raising women, uh, girls uh, you know, to be perfect wives and to stop raising boys to be perfect husbands. I think it's, we have to stop raising children to think that they're going to live in an impossible setup. Yeah, and the marriage is an yeah. impossible setup. The two-person marriage with common children and no one else involved is not a workable model. Do you, do you agree with that? Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, I'm interested in what Crystal thinks about this. What, what are your thoughts, Crystal? You've got kids. <laughs> <laughs> and you're travelling. A lot. Yeah, a lot. Sorry, I put you on the spot. Do you want to... Do um, you want to say something or not? It's fine if you don't. So I have... Um, and my story is different than yours. So don't get offended and jump on me. Um, as an indigenous woman, my story is very different. Um, so I, I have a responsibility to my children. I brought them into this world and I have a responsibility to them. And, you know, in thinking about that, this conversation and thinking about what needs to change and, you know, I keep thinking about you know, the violence against our women needs to change. Um, following our ways of knowing and being and being brought up by, by old women, you know, our role in a matriarchal society, because it's different for us as Indigenous women, our ways of knowing and being is drastically different from all of your stories. We're raised to be caregivers because as women, we're raised with that understanding that Ogawi Mawaski, our Mother Earth is our one true mother. And just as our Mother Earth provides all of those, those nurturing, uh, uh, she has all those nurturing abilities, you know, the water of life and provides everything that we need to survive. Us as women, it's our responsibility to do that as well. And so as a woman, you know, um, in, in, in a marriage, you know, I had to make a very hard choice back you know, in 2011, I had to choose, am I going to have a voice and speak for my children or I'm going to stay in an abusive marriage and get my ass kicked all the time? So I chose to leave. And I didn't choose to be a leader. I didn't choose to have a big mouth. I didn't choose this. I don't have a choice but to do this. So I had to make a choice to be a single mom. I have a boy that I need to raise to know how to treat women. Because of colonization, it's, he was failed. And his dad was failing him. I have a daughter. I have a responsibility to her to show her what she deserves. So as an Indigenous woman, it's my role to be a caregiver, 
to nurture. And a part of reconciliation, you know, my responsibility is to teach my children's father that he too has responsibility beyond providing the basic necessities and loving my children, but he also has a responsibility to love and respect me as the woman who brought life into this world for him. But that goes both ways in that I have a responsibility to love him in return and respect him for the walk that he walks. And so it's hard. It's not easy. As an Indigenous woman, when did it become okay that I had to choose being a mom over staying home? You know, being, being with my children over protecting their basic human rights to breathe clean air and drink clean water because it's bigger. It's a bigger issue for me than what it is for you ladies. <clears throat> You okay? Yeah. Thank you so much for Sorry. sharing your very personal story with us. Um, I think we might go to questions now. We've got some mics out in the audience. If anyone would like to ask anyone on the panel a question, please move to the microphones. Have we got someone? We've got someone here at microphone two. Would you like to ask your question? Okay, microphone two, please. Is this? Okay. Um, here's my question. So one of the biggest things among my friend group is we go to an all-girls public school and they always joke about marrying rich and marrying a doctor and marrying mm. a lawyer. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, that's what... But then it's gotten to the point when grown women have said that and it's become more serious in a sense that people will be, number one, ignoring all these people who don't find love in men. But it's gotten to the point where they are like, oh, well, I met this guy and he has two sisters, but his dad's really rich, so he's going to inherit a lot of money. Or I met someone who got a really high ATAR. <laughs> so what do you want to ask the panel? I want to ask the panel, <laughs> how are we going to fix this? No, I'm reading Gone with the Wind at the moment. And in the book, Scarlett O'Hara and all these women around her are still looking for the same thing, to find someone who's rich and to find someone who has money. And my question is, what's that constant that's remained from 1861 to 2016, which means that a lot of women are still looking for a man who's rich? It's <laughs> a great question. I missed the memo. <laughs> and not only are they looking for it, nobody finds it. <laughs> so be the woman you want to be. You don't need to be the woman somebody else tells you to be. Less than 1% of the world is rich. Do the math. <laughs> so, but the question is, why is it a constant? And this is what's interesting. You know, we, we think that we've made all these gains over, you know, decades, and, and you're still getting a question like that from someone in high school, and that's the message that's being sent. That's true, although 
as I was listening to you, I thought, yeah, and my oldest son's life strategy is to find a rich woman. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, well, that's progress. And I would say to him exactly what I would say I would. to you, which is part of the way the, femini- the women's movement started was in the, 50, in the 60s, and some of the had to do with larger social changes, in the United States, there was a huge wave of divorce when divorce became more acceptable. And it was men leaving women who had put them through graduate school, who had raised children, and who were suddenly in their mid-50s, and he runs off with his secretary, and she has no means of support. And so I would say to all you and your friends, not you, but just as I say to my sons, you cannot assume you're going to depend on anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, life is long. <laughs> and I've been where you've okay. been. Not we've, in the same way. But. We've got so many people lined up. I'm sorry, we're going to have to move on. I, I hope that partially answered your yes, question for you. you. <laughs> Thanks. Yes, up the top. Microphone three, sorry. Sorry. Um, In the panel today, we've heard both um, people saying that, um, that, you know, uh, regardless of sexuality, regardless of of race and all that, but we've also seen such an important focus on the different stories of women. We see a lot of people who try and present as a point of pride I'm gender blind, or I'm race blind, or I'm blind to religion, all of these things. Um, And that's something I've always thought is quite problematic, because while it's a wonderful goal to get to a point in society where we can be blind to those things, at this point, it's so important for us to not be blind to those things, because we need to recognise that each of those groups has different problems. So basically, intersectionality summed up. So what do you, what would you say to those people who consider it a point of pride to call themselves gender blind or colour blind or all of those things. Do you agree with them as considering that a point of pride or do you think it's problematic at this point where we're at with that pro- societal progress to be blind? Okay, Marsha, do you want to answer that? Um, an easy question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that... Um, the answer is, and the answer to most of these kinds of questions is always both, right? Uh, it's, it is definitely a point of pride to not take gender and sexuality and all sorts of other personal and identity attributes into consideration when they shouldn't be taken into consideration. But it doesn't mean that they don't exist. And to pretend that they don't exist is a whole other uh, step, and that's not a step that should be taken, because they do exist. It doesn't mean that there are objective divides, you know, uh, and, that's, and that's where we get into the really interesting part of the conversation. Uh, it doesn't mean that gender is what we're raised to think, uh, raised to think that gen- gender was, but it also doesn't mean that it's not real. Okay, next question, number four. Um, hi. Um, I have anxiety and like I also really need to pee so like please forgive me if like (laughs) I stutter a bit Um, like it's just that like at the beginning of this like talk um, like something that Crystal said really resonated with me and it was that like you know like we have two ears and one mouth and like you know we're meant to listen Um, and I think that really highlights the problem with white feminism is that it's all about you know 
um, making people's voices louder, which I think is great. Like, it's absolutely important. But, like, it's, it's a very, like, capitalist kind of feminism. Like, it's quite about, like, competition and, like, you know, making your voices louder rather than, like, you know, maybe perhaps, like, letting other people be slightly, I guess, more passive so that, you know, the, like, the, the voices of, like, minorities can be heard. So like, do, you, do you have a question that you want to ask? I do, in fact. And I, and I want to, like, ask, you know, why, you know, in this panel, like, like that question hasn't been tackled. Why, you know, in a panel that is all about, you know, what needs to change, um, why there hasn't really been discussion about, rather than, you know, making our voices louder, why there hasn't been discussion about, you know, perhaps checking our privilege and talking about how we can be more inclusive rather than competing with each other to have our voices heard. Okay, who wants to check that up? I, mean, I, I, will, I will just say, I, um, not, to, not to repeat myself what I'm going to say later, but in my view, uh, we, we are way too focused on competition. We're fo way too focused on what has been a traditional male world, more a traditional white male privileged world, but not entirely. Uh, and that, that focusing on care is a far more inclusive frame. And actually, when I was listening to Crystal, I was thinking, you know, the, the, as you describe care, care for Mother Earth, care for each other, care, a, a sense of, that, that is a far more inclusive frame. So I guess what I, I'm aiming for is not to throw out white corporate feminism, because having women in positions of power in what is still a man's world and is gonna be a man's world for a good long time is really important, it's just not enough. And I think too, just to jump in really quickly, um, I think too there can be a sense uh, among all sorts of different communities, if there's a sense of scarcity, this idea, there are only so many seats at this table, this is the most important thing that we can all get and we need to fight for it, as opposed to, and I think this is happening in lots of different communities um, and lots of different conversations, this idea that um, maybe that's a false premise and maybe that's not something that we need to buy into. Maybe there's this idea that there can be other tables and other conversations, and I think, um, particularly in ways in which whatever your own community is looking for ways that you can be more inclusive, not jump to the front of the line, um, and, and look for people who are traditionally marginalized and, and figure out ways in which you can combat that um, is really helpful, I think. Crystal, do you want to say anything, or are you right? No? Okay. There's a okay. man there. Um, mic one. Oh, this is a bit tall for me. <laughs> Pain's being short. Um, I actually have a couple of questions, but I need to choose one right now. You I do, because choose. this is the last question, so you've oh, got the okay. last one. Okay, must be a good one. Um, okay, I wanted to say that um, when we are having our progressive ideologies, and when we do have um, these thoughts when we want to be inclusive, we want to be intersectional, we want to include a lot of people in our conversations and all of these sort of more progressive um, thoughts and actions and advo uh, advocacy. Um, how is that different um, to um, the more traditional system of oppression that we are talking about? Because when we are tr talking about these progressive ideologies and we are telling people about them and we are trying to educate them and trying to make change in this world, um, and we are like holding people to account and calling out bigotry and racism and sexism and all of these things, um, 
how is that different to the system imposing our place onto us? And how is that different to people telling us what to do? And um, is it, like, is what we do, um, should, should we be comfortable with ourselves calling people out as bigots and as racists and things like that? Or should we just work on ourselves and how we can be more inclusive and how we can do our best to improve the situation? Interesting question. Who'd like to, who'd like to take that up? Well, I'll start and say, I think ultimately change starts with self. Because you can't talk to other people about change if you haven't dealt with your own issues. Uh, and I think, uh, and partly to the question that was asked at, uh, at the top as well, whether you're privileged or not, uh, the, and as many of us here are at various, um, at various levels, there's also a piece about obligation. So I think you've got to start with self. You can't change anybody else if you can't change yourself, or anything else if you can't change yourself. Uh, or you can't work out what needs to be changed. And secondly, I think there is a piece that goes to obligation to others, uh, and that's where maybe calling things out or addressing issues that you see. And, uh, I mean, there's a, a, a famous quote in corporate culture, which is, you set standards by the things you're prepared to ignore and walk past. And as soon as you walk past or ignore something that you know is wrong or should be done, you've actually set that as a standard for everybody else. And so I think there's a dynamic around that that, uh, that actually, again, starts with self. Okay, I'm going to squeeze one more person in up there who's very keen to ask a question. Hello. Yep. Hello, thank you very much. Um, I'd firstly like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Indeed. We are two Aboriginal women from SEED, the first uh, Indigenous Youth Climate Network in the country. Um, personally, we are wondering where the voices of Australian Aboriginal women are on this panel. Our question is to Crystal. What kind of burden does it create for you being the only Indigenous woman on the panel and being the only person of colour on the panel? Um, yeah, and this panel is about what needs to change, but really, what needs to change about this panel itself? And how does it feel like sitting there in this space? Good question. It's a good question. Go ahead, and it's Crystal. actually going to touch on that, that, and so um, change. Change starts with us as individuals. Um, so it's funny because I actually reached over to you and said if we want to talk about being inclusive, there's some Aboriginal women up there that want to ask a question, so let's never mind that this timer stopped mm. and let's let them speak um, as the original people of this, this territory. And so um, further to that, I, I have to own my own privilege too in that I have an opportunity to sit here, I have an opportunity to speak in this space, but I had that same question. That same question has been lingering in the back of my mind since I walked in here last night. Where are the original people of this territory? Um, but I have, I have privilege too. I have privilege in that I'm, I'm given that responsibility to do this work for our mother. It doesn't matter where I am on this earth. So just like you, Marawa, when you came to my community a year ago, you came there and you, you spoke there in my community. 
as, as responsibility to your people here. So just as, as, as it's, it's, the, the, it's been reversed. And so I, all I can do is do my very best to speak for each and every one of us, to speak for those next seven generations coming ahead and those future generations and those ones back there that fought and died for us. Doesn't matter where I am in this, in this, in this Mother Earth. Thank you very much for your question. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for. Crystal, Mallory, Anne-Marie, Anne and Marsha, thank you very much for joining us today.